This is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. <laughs> you shut up. I'm Justin. I'm a scholarly communications librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Jay. I am a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Sorry, I almost cut you off. Hi, I'm I'm R.E. Parrish, um, and my pronouns are she, her. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. I can't remember how to do this on Tumblr to see how long I've been following your comics, but it's probably been a while. <laughs> oh man, well, just the, like the olden days on Tumblr brings yeah, me back. Yeah, I remember it was um, when ALA reblogged one of yours. Was when I started seeing your stuff go around everywhere. The fucking American Library Association got to you. I think that was like when I was in grad school, so that was like fully more than seven years ago. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> me and Jay have been mutuals on Tumblr eight years. Awesome. I'm I'm returning there now. I've I've made my my grand uh, return. I get I never stopped posting comics, but my personal blog, I I sort of fired that up again because of the Twitter stuff, so. Yeah, I never left. So, but I have uh, I I kind of didn't really find new people for a while because a lot of people left mostly. Mm-hmm. So, I felt like I wasn't really adding anyone for a long time, so it just felt like I was kind of posting in circles for a couple of years. But it, I mean, that's also kind of Tumblr's nature is like a post just makes the round again and again. You're like, ah, I remember this and you just reblog it again. So it's kind of fine that it died because uh, it just echoes anyway. Oh, hey, that was accidentally on theme. Yeah, I know. Hey. <laughs> awesome. But before we get to uh, eternal recurrences, I have it's not really a question, but it's it's a Reddit ask Reddit ask Reddit. Those people are dum dums. This post is idea sharing. What was your best program and library? What was your best program and display this year? I'm in adult services at a public library. My best active program was a plant exchange. People could bring a plant and take a plant. Was popular enough that I'll make a recurring event next year, maybe quarterly or every other month. My best passive program was a book recommendation bowl. Strips of paper with book recommendations on them. So like a swingers book recommendation. (laughs) My best display featured books and movies that take place in our state. People love the local content. I'm looking for ideas for next year. I just want to share this because those are good ideas. Yeah, the plant one. I guess you bring a plant once you've killed it. That's what I would do. I would kill a plant and I would bring it back to the library. <laughs> sort of like um, like Seriously Wrong's Library Socialism. Like when something breaks, you take it back to the library to get repaired in like a library socialist society. Here's the plant I took out. Mm-hmm. It died. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe you can you can fix it. Yeah, I think I haven't done like much like library programming yet at my new place, but the queer student union uh, keeps inviting me to do zine workshops for them, and so I feel like a, a cool hip librarian teaching them how to make scenes and showing them parterre box. Uh, Re, do you know about parterre box? Mm-mm. 
oh god parterre box is an opera blog but it started out as like a queer opera zine in like (laughs) the 90s and stuff and the guy who makes parterre box would like make copies and like go cruise the men's room at the met during intermission and leave them in there yeah (laughs) that's so cool so it's like this is our culture (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome i gotta check that out now yeah, a P-A-R-T-E-R-R-E box. Cool. Yeah. It's not really my job to do a lot of programming, and I really haven't done much this year. Um, I thought this year's open access week theme was kind of a dud. It's about like open access and environmental like climate change studies. And I was like, yeah, open access isn't really the problem with climate change science. <laughs> so I don't know. I do like the ideas that they mentioned, so I wanted to bring them up in case someone else wants to do it. Yeah, do like a little plant exchange at your library. That's cute. Yeah, or the book bowl. I would definitely do the book bowl if I was still running like the reference desk. I would just be like, yeah, we got a book bowl. Here you go. When um, at the undergrad music library where I went to undergrad and that I worked in, um, we would do blind date CDs where all of the student workers, we got to pick the CDs that we liked and wrap them up. And like, you could like check one out as like a blind date where you would have like one word about it or something and then check it out. But you wouldn't know what it was until you took it out and like listened to it. So CD blind dates are, 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 are cute. Like, programming idea too jay do you remember any of the cds that you did and like what how you described them um i i was always pulling like the prince ones but also all the diamanda galas ones that we had mm-hmm. i forget uh what i named the diamanda galas one but either you're welcome or i'm sorry if you got the diamanda galas <laughs> one anyone out there listening um because i was like oh all the weirdo shit that i i made kathleen buy um, like I think I made her buy some Neubauten one time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, can we get some Neubauten for the library? <laughs> so I was just forcing like weirdo or like, I think I did some Elian Hadig. Like I believe we had like a CD of Jetsun Mila that I put out there. So like basically any like women electronic musicians or experimental music and whatnot. I was like weirdo shit was finding it and putting it out there. But I forget what how I was describing it. So I think for Prince, it was just something born like purple. Because I couldn't <laughs> think of anything. But um, Yeah, we did Blind Date with a Book stuff in my last library. But um, sometimes people would just unwrap the book to check it out. And they're like, oh, I don't want to read this. <laughs> <laughs> so they wouldn't check it out. <laughs> See, we, they would, they, like, we would check it out to them while it was still wrapped up. So they wouldn't know what it was until they got it home with them. So they couldn't unwrap it and then check it out. They had to check it out and then get it home and unwrap it. I just scanned the barcode. I think we had like a number on it and then we like wrote down like what it was or something. And then, so you could then check it out. Oh, you could just search for it or something. Yeah. You can check things out without knowing what their barcode is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was Reddit. Ask Reddit. Boop, boop, boop. So this is a J-heavy episode. He wrote Hi. out the notes. But since we have a guest, would you like to tell us about your work and um, what you do? I feel like work is its like a generous term for it. I am a cartoonist. I uh, mostly make comics about literature, movies, television occasionally, kind of whatever. American history, I guess. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have one novella out 
currently, which is a parody of the movie Amadeus, um, but with frat boys. <laughs> and I'm currently working on a graphic novel about uh, Northern Virginia in the nineteen in the year 1970, CIA. So yeah, that's pretty much that's all I can. And and my day job, I'm a I'm a consultant, so that's really not uh not, <laughs> not very glamorous, unfortunately. Which of your comics was the one that ALA like spread around? I want to say it was like the writer fights one of them. It's I think so. it's very hazy. It's that's I, it's either that or that was the one Penguin did. For some reason, it didn't know Penguin had a Tumblr account, but I guess it it does. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, Library of Babel? Yeah. <laughs> Library of Babel. Jay, you want to sure. tell us about uh, Jorge Luis Borgia? Yes. Borges? Um, Borges. Um, so, as we discussed uh, way back when we did Name of the Rose... Jorge Luis Borges, Luis Borges. Yeah, I don't speak. It's Spanish in Argentina, right? Yes. Okay, it's not one of the Portuguese countries. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jorge Luis, Bo- uh, Luis Borges uh, was an Argentinian uh, writer, primarily short stories, um, but he also did some like nonfiction, did some like pretty influential essays and stuff too. And he was also a librarian um, and a lecturer. And in Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose, there's the blind librarian who is based after um, Borges. And he also did a lot of like translations and stuff. And what I found fun, I think it was yesterday or today, going through, was I didn't know that he was an anarchist. He was anti-communist, but in the like authoritarian communism sense, he was like, fuck the state. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. He was a, quote, Spencerian anarchist who believes in the individual and not in the state. And I looked up and Spencerian refers to the, like, social Darwinism guy. So not great there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was like, oof. But he was very, like, anti-Peron as well. So dude was pretty cool. Very anti-fascist. I can see why Echo liked him, obviously. And hugely influential um, I see someone put in the notes as like, how do we classify Borges and his work? Is he like postmodern? Is he like philosophical fiction? Justin, was that you or Ari, was that you? Who that put was that me. In <laughs> okay, discuss. What do you think? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I would probably say postmodern, even though it's like kind of a little early for what when that is thought to have happened in literature. And this is, by the way, I, I want to reiterate that I'm a cartoonist. I am like talking on my ass. <laughs> I have no training whatsoever. And in, 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 I didn't take any literature classes. It's just me just having fun here. So if I say anything <laughs> wrong, which I will, you know, don't attack me, uh, people on the internet. But uh, you think of like postmodernism, at least for me, like in terms of literature, starting maybe in the 50s like William Gaddis kind of yeah know, era. And some, yeah it's <laughs> some like early pension mm-hmm. but yeah. there's also like all that stuff that came before that you know people are like well technically like Tristram Shandy like Moby Dick you know these qualify as postmodern I was like maybe that's true maybe that's true <laughs> so <laughs> but anyway I'd use the term postmodern probably yeah, yeah, because I, I would say, like, in the way that it's, like, more, like, fucking around with structure 
Maybe it's like postmodern in the way that like people say that Derrida is post-structuralist and that Derrida is not post-structuralist. Derrida is a structuralist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but that like he's like because of how he exists within that space that then this conversation starts to happen. So he's still kind of operating firmly within it, but it's starting to poke holes in it mm-hmm. so that other people can start. Yeah, that's how I might classify what I've read of of Borges. But there's also just a larger also conversation around um, hypertext mm-hmm. that Borges is part of. Um, we've talked a little bit on here about hypertext fiction and hyperlink fiction starts before the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and hypertext and hyperlink and largely in South America, mm-hmm. um, largely in Argentina and other countries with people like Borges, as well as this book called Hopscotch. I love Cortazar. He's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when I was working on my second master's, the advisor for the program studies like Latin American uh, hypertext fiction oh, cool. and, and told Very me all cool. about that. Yeah. I was like, oh, dude, best friends right here. So that sort of like playing with conven- uh, con- convention and like how stories weave together is very post. It's weird because like Joyce was doing that too, but I don't ever really hear people call Joyce a postmodernist. Oh, maybe it's the people you follow on Twitter. I see it all the time. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This probably speaks poorly of me. I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, people, you know, say Ulysses is is postmodern sometimes. Yeah, I guess it's like, are we talking about in like themes or in like formal like structure stuff and that's the thing right mm-hmm. Woke yeah. moralists and <laughs> postmodern neo-marxists mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and borges is to blame for it all yep he sure was a postmodern neo-marxist <laughs> he's the first Up one yours woke moralist we'll <laughs> see who cancels who <laughs> that's gonna be the worst thing about twitter dying is like jordan peterson's the funniest person to ever exist he like, he, no he really is like <laughs> Every time there's a new video, I have to watch it because he's going to do some, he's going to cry about something I never thought I'd see someone cry about. It's awesome. Yeah. And I hadn't heard of this essay, The Total Library, that Borges had done, but I first read Library of Babel and then a later work heavily inspired by it called The Book of Sands back when Mm -hmm. I was in high school and like sophomore year of AP English, we read some Borges and I was like, oh, this book. (laughs) <laughs> especially book of sands i don't know if either of you have read i have not book of sands it's about like a, a book and like you never can find the same page twice mm-hmm. in it and like you go crazy trying to like look for it and and whatnot um it's just add it's like it's about the book. one infinite book yeah this is ringing about okay i have read that sorry <laughs> yeah it's like instead of giant big infinite library mm-hmm. it's one small infinite book, infinite book. <laughs> Basically. Um, And there's like a cool like online text version of it where you have to like arrange the pages in the right order. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's been a lot of cool like digital humanities work done with Borges' texts, including Book of Sands. And then the Library of Babel has its own website Mm -hmm. where the actual Library of Babel exists and you can like search any text string that you want and it will show you anywhere that it shows up in the library, including the book that like is your name if you so choose and whatnot, mm-hmm. which I did and I downloaded mine <laughs> because you can do that. But yeah, so he wrote this essay called The Total Library and 
the sort of infinite monkey like you know if you put down what is it like uh monkeys with typewriters and they'll eventually write hamlet yeah or something is that what it is basically yeah or i think it's like the the quote is every book in the british museum which is interesting they said museum in the essay are they are there a lot of books in the british museum i don't um, know prob- probably i know <laughs> um in um room of one's own virginia wolf I believe it's I believe it's a room with one's own, but the whole thing when Virginia Woolf was talking about not being able to find things about like lesbians mm-hmm. in like the card catalog that's in the British Museum, not the British Library. Okay, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I was definitely expecting the word library there, and I got museum, and I was like, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> very intellectual. Um, but yeah, I what I like about that essay is is how much of it you see sort of as like a it's kind of like a first draft of the story, like especially mm-hmm. at the end where there's there's like a the second to last paragraph is like almost verbatim repeated in the story, which is very cool. It kind of reminded me of reading. Oh no, I'm bringing him up the the tv essay by david foster wallace Mm -hmm. and uh what he then sort of put into infinite jest after that which you know he wrote those like a a few years apart so i always find that interesting and i honestly it's probably just because i don't read a lot of essays that i don't see this more but (laughs) these are the examples i can think of i mean infinite jest so much of the stuff there uh oh it's infinite jest posting time So much of the stuff in there was just stuff that he had published in other essays and short stories Mm -hmm. and like email chains going around and stuff. So I'm not surprised that, you know, Borges was doing it too. But yeah, that's sort of like a a concept I've heard. You know, it's like one of those, like, I never, I don't remember the first time I heard the, like, if you sit a bunch of monkeys down with a typewriter, they'll eventually type, you know, Shakespeare. I don't remember where I first heard that. Same. But, it just sort of gets tossed around, but I suppose this is the original source, I'd imagine. Yeah. They say Huxley. Yeah. I'd, I hadn't actually read the Total Library until I was doing like very cursory research when you asked me to suggest like a topic for this mm-hmm. uh, podcast episode. <laughs> And I'm like a dumbass because I was like, I was like, oh, Library of Babel, that's that's pretty <laughs> cool, like because they're librarians on the show, <laughs> and I want to know what they have to say about it. Um, like neglecting to think about whether I would have anything interesting to say about this, which I like do not. So please, <laughs> if 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 the first twenty minutes hasn't given this away, please lower your expectations. <laughs> Because I was like, I was like, what can I bring to the table is like my own like feelings of mysticism, which is like not not rooted in any like reading or theory or anything. It's uh, it's my own woo woo spirituality and the and the vibes I get from the story, which is essentially like listening to someone recount a dream. So it's not interesting for other people <laughs> unfortunately i was sort of running into that as i was preparing for today i was like oh god damn no that's why i like borges and like why i like the awesome. book of sands and why i liked library babble when i first read them like in high school because it felt like like even beyond like the book nerdery shit it was like this like sense of like infinity that mm-hmm. it opened up when i read them because they're written so simply is the thing like you start reading library babble and for the okay so people who don't know library babble short story and it's about it details the universe, which is a library, and almost like like you would describe like when you're reading the Bible and like how to build the ark 
almost. And it's like, and it's like, it's a bunch of hexagons and they're this big <laughs> and they're attached like this. And there's this many letters. And basically it's like all these like hexagon book stack things. And they have this many books on them. And each book is uh, 410 pages and each page can fit this many characters on it. And these are the only characters that can be on there. And there are an infinite, whatever, like any word or combination of letters or whatnot that could exist is contained within the library. And that's sort of like the basis of the library of Babel. And it's like a good chunk of the story is just detailing like, and here's how this library works, which is why someone was able to like literally recreate what it actually is like online, like through Mm -hmm. algorithms and stuff where you can actually just go into the library of Babel. It's like a real thing that exists now in the digital space. And the narrator of library of Babel, it's like, all right, and all right, we're going to go into our building Noah's Ark type of measurements for the library of Babel. And then starts to go into the more like the metaphysics and the mysticism and sort of lore and history about the library. And that was what I always found interesting. Mm. And like with Book of Sands, when the sort of like manic obsession about you get a very like, my God, it's full of stars moment <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you're reading Borges for the first mm-hmm. time. Like that's because it's so dry for a bit. You're like, all right, they're hexagons. Cool. <laughs> There's this letters, great, awesome. There's this many pages, cool. And then it goes into like just, and still written very simply, but just, I don't know if that makes sense of just like the type of feeling you get when you're reading Borges mm-hmm. for the first time, especially Library of Babel. Yeah. It's just the way that Borges can sort of capture the infinite in something so mundane as like a book. Mm-hmm. So that's the mysticism aspect is also what always intrigued me about Borges as well. This is before I wanted to be a librarian or, or anything. So I was just like, oh, it's infinity, bitches. <laughs> um, oh, he's going crazy because he can't find him. Oh, no, the book is God. And maybe that's why House of Leaves is my favorite book. <laughs> I was going to say that, it, you know, it's clearly very influential to something like House of Leaves. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Justin, had you ever read any Borges? No, I keep running into him and keep meaning to like sit down and read some. I don't. I feel like there's something of his I must have read, but it wasn't the Library of Babel. Else, like I, I might have run into him. Uh, something about like didn't he do like forgeries or hoaxes? Uh, there's something in his Wikipedia about this. Maybe that's how I came into it. But mm. uh, it's just Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, I I read. Um, I think the first time I read it, uh, any story by him at all was in graduate school, like my second year of grad school. When, like, (laughs) my brain was basically being, like, fried like an egg. And it was just, it was was a good, it was a good time to encounter um, (laughs) that because I was, I was very, I was feeling very raw, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, I don't know if it it helped or hurt (laughs) the overall situation, but um, I was very open to it at the time, and uh, and recently I've been trying to like actually read all the stories because I've only read like maybe half of them at this point. So, uh, tons I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I guess as like a non-library person, what do you? Because I see that you are wanting to then ask us about what we as library people think of the library. But like when you read Borges and like specifically like Library Babel, but I guess like Book of Sands could also be interesting but like as a non-library person what is it being like a library 
I mean, I, I sort of did the default uninteresting thing, which is, you know, the library is like, I don't know, either the structure of the universe or like natural law or like reading it as a metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, for the universe, man, or whatever. And and the qu- the question that I've like written down in our uh, like preparation document is the re- the reason I like kind of wanted to talk about this was very selfishly to listen to librarians talk about this because I think it's <laughs> it's interesting to like approach the story from a like literally being about a library perspective like if you want to read it that way and I don't work at a library I use the library but I I don't work there and I don't work in like you know information like uh what is it called i have read it i've written it down archiving that's it <laughs> i'm sure is the word you use all the time but because the, there is so much in there about like the sort of having to wade through all these books of like seemingly nonsense to get to the tiny tiny percentage that are written in a way that you'd understand Unless you were, you know, trying to crack the code, I guess. And like, you know, the the librarians that that try to, you know, throw certain books out and the sort of infighting there. I wondered if there is like, I don't know, something if this was resonant to you professionally. <laughs> yeah. And like, so maybe it says something about me that like, I never viewed this as metaphorical, even in high school when I read it. I was like, oh, yeah, obviously this library is the universe. And this Mm -hmm. is all just like literal material fact within this universe that Borges is writing. And I totally am down with the like, and God is a book in the center of (laughs) this somewhere that these mystics are trying to find in like their Mm -hmm. ecstasy of searching. And all of that was like this very like... Like this, like material mysticism, mm-hmm. and not necessarily like a not in the way that sometimes we on this sh- on this podcast and just in the profession in general, where there's like book people and people people. Mm-hmm. Like, why why are you a librarian? What are what are the materials for? Are you like a materials person, or are you like a people person? Not that those are mutually exclusive, but it's the sort of like, are you more there for like? are you into the objects or are you into like Mm -hmm. having people use objects and stuff? So not in that sense, but in a sense of like the materialness of this library just always felt very real Mm -hmm. to me. And I always thought that was like so fucking cool. That was what was so mind opening about it for me was trying to imagine this as a real space that could exist and being like, Theoretically, it could if there's only so many, only so many combinations that you could do with these letters and whatnot. But and then in the way he's describing it, it's like once it's like once he brings in the metaphysics and like the the mystics with their god with the book hmm. spine that goes around the room or right. something, and the people that like the one librarian who found like the book that was like a summation index, yeah. of all the other books and is like this like god figure and whatnot like that is what opened this up for me and i always found interesting and so revisiting it i wasn't even as a librarian it wasn't even registering of like oh how would Mm -hmm. these be cataloged and like it wasn't interesting it was interesting for him to bring the point up as like what's on the spine has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the contents of the book Mm -hmm. i was like oh that's interesting but i was much more concerned with like the mystical Sure. elements and, and whatnot, which I don't know, that might say something about me as a librarian then. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, 
I think it's probably the most important aspect of the story. So it's not a bad <laughs> thing to get hung up on by any means. But yeah. But what I think out of all that, though, what struck me was the librarians who would go through and get rid of the nonsense books and then our narrator making the point that that's kind of pointless because there will be other books where it's only a comma different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then the point is brought up as like how much damage has been done Mm -hmm. to because of all of those books that were removed. Like you can't ever know. And so are you overestimating or underestimating that I found to be very salient right now um, because this year, especially there's been just a lot of talk of web archiving because of things like the war and conflict in Ukraine. And there was a bunch of librarians and digital humanities people that were doing a lot of um, web archiving and scraping of cultural institutions and heritage Mm -hmm. near the beginning of that Um, stuff with the internet archive in general. I know that I was writing a little bit about it because of the Isabel fall Mm-hmm. situation and now with twitter there's been all like the book bannings and stuff going on but i feel like things being lost online like the ephemera of our digital information structures is what was more resonant mm-hmm. with the story to me than anything i don't know i've been talking a lot justin <laughs> yeah i mean it only works as sort of a metaphor for the universe and like information and information and sort of the information theory sort of way and like information is the structure of atoms it only exists when it has structure it doesn't exist separate from atoms so it's like a very materialist way of thinking about the world it's a physical atomic way of thinking about the world so you can imagine like what i was thinking about is information theory does come into library science um, but not in the same way that it comes into physics this is more in the way that physics Mm. thinks about information so like I imagine if this is an infinite series of like Hamiltonian cycles, because uh, someone did the mathematics of this short story and just mm-hmm. and, and and figured out that it could be and it actually could be infinite if you had six sided rooms if you made Hamiltonian cycles or if there were different floors or something like that. So I imagine if you looked on the outside of it as a universe, in the same way that physics imagines it might be possible, if you were to look outside the universe, all the information would be visible to you on the outside of it if you were somehow external to it. So it's like information and black holes, for instance, like how does information get pulled into a black hole and how is it, what would it look like if you fell into one, you would start, you would eventually see all of the universe sorting to pinch in front of you mm-hmm. because you would see before and behind you. Um, because of the way uh, the singularity works. And so if you could see outside of the universe, you would also see all the information that was reflect on the inside of it. So there's a fun idea there of like, do black holes create universes, that sort of thing. So that all of the, this is sort of really playing with like physicalism and atomic theory. And if something was truly infinite, then everything must exist out there in a way. So even though the books are limited and the information is mostly gibberish, it's really interesting to put like humans in there and then having them try to figure out like how they make sense of all of these things. Because it's a weird metaphor because like libraries are really utilitarian things like they only work if you can use them. A library Mm -hmm. full of like gibberish books wouldn't really be a library because no one would know how to use it without a catalog or Mm -hmm. without like an accepted language. So on that sense, like it's kind of a weird metaphor. And I think some of the other ones are more interesting because they're like, I think there was a story. I know I've already asked Matthew about what it was, but he mentioned like a, a fiction story he read, or maybe it was a video game episode that they played. But the whole 
book was like one long room and it was uh, more or less infinite, but most of the rooms were abandoned. Mm-hmm. I imagine that would be a really fun thing because most of when you're talking about like abandonment, most of the stuff isn't, isn't inherently useful, whereas books tend to have like more purpose and meaning behind them because they're made to be used like useful objects. The idea of a randomly generated book is kind of weird. I, it is kind of the way we treat information yeah, in terms I, of like also, if it's gibberish. Yeah. The There's like a line, paraphrasing, there's like a line in the story talking about how like the, the books and the library are either created by or manifestations of God and humans were either an accident or created by some lesser God, like a demiurge. The narrator says this, and obviously, I, I'm I'm big into the whole Gnostic thing, and so I love it every time Borges does some Gnostic shit, which is almost uh, every story that I've read by him. Um, I, I always thought that that was sort of interesting the the information itself being in some way perfect that and and the humans sort of can't comprehend it, obviously, as they're you know purging parts of it. Or whatever. Yeah, like I think my favorite thing about like in them like trying to figure like in all of the theories about like the cryptography and whatnot was the book that was just MVC and how I think it was MVC and how some people theorize that like the MVCs at the beginning of that book were different than the ones at the end of mm-hmm. that book, even yeah. though it's the same string of letters, just by like proximity and meaning and repetition. It's, it's some like Deleuze shit happening. And this is b- <laughs> pre Deleuze. I think I wonder if Deleuze read this and was like, Hey, <laughs> some like difference of repetition happening, mm. but just that like things like how something that is exactly the same could have like its meanings and therefore itself like where the meaning of something could actually change what something is, even though it's the same thing, mm-hmm. that sort of fucking like alchemy <laughs> of, of meaning I found to be very fascinating and like how we understand language and I guess like semiotics and mm-hmm. signs in general is it could be the same thing over and over and over again, but it's meaning was shifting mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Like, Justin, I like what you bring up about, like, as a library, this would seem pretty useless, like, because they're not utilitarian, like, what use are these books and whatnot? But then I would also, like, anything could be useful if you have the right use for it. And so we've been having some discussions lately, mainly around, like, special collections, but, like, what is the point of having like a special collections or having certain materials in a special collections. Like we just talked about F for fake and it's like, why would you have art, you know, in a museum or, you know, we talked about American animals and like, why have, you know, an, a, a book of Audubon prints in your special collections? Like why have these things? Is it to quote, preserve a cultural heritage or is it for like the John D Fucksmith collection of, we want your money And so like in a library, yes, it's more obvious that these are for use, but also most of these books are never going to be circulated a single time. Like even in a regular library, most books are never going to be circulated. And if they are, it's going to be very few times. Most books will sit there until they are weeded or they rot. Mm -hmm. And the books are just words printed on a page anyway. And so it's like, are books in a library even that utilitarian and useful more so than these nonsense ones would be? 
if I went into the physics section of a university library, it would probably be as gibberish to me as any of the books I could look up in the Library of Babel, because I don't know that context. They're of no use to me. Most books are of no use to most people. That's like a dark... <laughs> so in, in library science, RE, we have these things called the Ranganathan's Five Laws of Library Science. And you've maybe heard some form of these where it's like every book, it's reader, every reader, their book, books are for use. Those are the important ones for our discussion. Okay, yes, every reader, their book and every book, the reader, but not every book is going to like be a the book for every reader. Mm-hmm. And so if I went into another person's house and looked at their books, most of them are probably useless to me. Right. So then what's the fucking purpose of library? <laughs> That's a great question. Borges has me questioning my whole profession. I might go quit tomorrow. <laughs> but like I, I work in a music conservatory mm-hmm. and we just have scores. And most of them, a lot of them don't get checked out. There will be sections that I can tell get a lot of views because I have to shelf read them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can never find anything because everything's always out of order. But there are a bunch of things that have just never been touched. So Yeah, I yeah. I have no answer. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a library that creates itself, then I think, actually, I think it makes sense to to start weeding until you find meaning into it. I mean, that's kind of what humans do when they found themselves in the universe is we take things out in the physical world and we craft it into things that make sense for us. And sometimes that means destruction. Um, and if, it, if your whole universe was just a series of books, then it would make sense to try and weed it down until you found things that worked for you. There was something in the Wikipedia about Kabbalistic reasoning, which is something I'm not familiar with. So I do, couldn't really understand what they meant. Um, I assume, it, I mean, I know it has something to do with mysticism, but I couldn't figure out exactly how it fit into the short story, but that was something I was interested in and tried to look up, but I couldn't find out like how that heuristic works. I imagine I've heard something similar before. I wish, I wish I could help. I have read some amount about Kabbalah, but I can't, I'm, I'm a dumbass. Honestly, I could not paraphrase mm-hmm. anything about it pretty much. I, there was like a phase of my life where I would like fall asleep listening to a, like a YouTube like question and answer series with like and uh, I forget what it, it was called. Um, Ask the Kabbalist, I think. Most of what I know is because I read this book, Occult Features of Anarchism, mm. that talks a lot about uh, the Hermetic mm-hmm. tradition and Freemasonry, which dab which has some Kabbalah in there, like the like the general like. Anglo sphere mystic tradition that arises. Like with the hermeticism, I feel like I have a better yeah. it's easier to grasp than like the the like hardcore books about Kabbalah, which are so hard to understand. So but I think a lot like the the Kabbalistic stuff, the like al- alchemical hermetic stuff, the Gnostic stuff, it, Borges uses all of them and he sort of like peppers it in. I don't think any of the stories and and maybe this is again, like a, like a very stupid thing to say. It could be, but I don't think you need to have the, the total background in any of those to uh, be on the right wavelength for these stories. And Perhaps it's like, I don't know, it's like a David Lynch movie. Like it's, it's about being on the, approaching it with the wavelength that you're on and seeing how it matches up 
Does this make any sense? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, completely. Yeah, like, because, like, with, with Lynch, it's very, like, how do you feel mm-hmm. while you're watching it? People are always trying to, like, what does it mean? It's, like, like one, Eraserhead is really not that complex of a film. Two, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more about, like, okay, how is this, like, affecting you subconsciously? You know, wh- how is this connecting with you? What are you bringing Right to it, and yeah, Borges is very like like I'm. I'm not trying to say he's Lynchian at all. No, not at but, all. <laughs> but like you said, it, he his writing style is so simple, and these impossible sort of like Escherish, Escherish, um, or if you're talking about something like the Aleph, like all of the universe contained in one point kind of stuff that he writes about these like things that you're picturing in your mind. So much of it is about what you bring to it with your own imagination. And so I, I imagine that everyone gets different stuff out of it, at least to a certain degree. Yeah. Like when I read Borges, especially book of saints and library Babel, it always feels like that scene in the fountain where Hugh Jackman's character like sees into Shibalba finally, and it's like the like gold light over his face. He has like the ha, huh? and then like mm-hmm. his body just like melts away mm-hmm. uh, under like the gaze of the Shibalba star that he goes through, or like the 2001 or yeah. 2010, where it's the my god, it's full of stars, yeah, moment, or like in contact, you know, should have sent a poet. Like those kinds of moments mm-hmm. are what I get when I read. Borges. And it's so funny because in the Aleph, it's like the narrator is, as I recall, read this one more recently, uh, the narrator is a writer Mm -hmm. and is like very distraught at the inability to convey this experience that he had with the Aleph. And like, he's just very, very upset that there's no way that human language could possibly begin to describe it. He obviously gives it his best shot. But I just I, I I like that aspect of it too. So something that can bug me in fiction a lot is, and I guess it's similar to like auto fiction, is where someone like takes what they are in mm-hmm. real life, like a librarian or something, and when they write, it's about that, right. right? Like sometimes that bugs me unless someone's really good at it. But that's what this is: is Borges being like, what if? <laughs> cool cosmic mysticism librarianship. Whoa, wouldn't that be sweet? Answer, yes, it would be fucking sweet. Knowing that like a librarian wrote this, how does that – because I didn't know he was a librarian when I was in high school when I read this. I didn't know until I saw that like today. So in the document. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I don't know much about his life, honestly. Yeah. It was not his primary profession, but then definitely later in life, that was like his primary thing mm-hmm. was librarianship. Uh, granted, I don't think he had like a master's degree or anything. I didn't <laughs> look, but um, but it was something that he did um, at like a national level. Like he was like a national, he was like the Library of Congress for Argentina. What, what didn't he do? <laughs> I know. Um, he did everything while blind. Like, yeah, Jesus. And so I guess like I guess maybe what are some marks on this story where it's like only a librarian would know to <laughs> like mention that kind of thing or do we think how different do we think the story would have been if someone who wasn't a librarian had written it My impression of of Borges I guess I 
not knowing that he was a librarian until very recently. It's not like he gets into too many like technicalities in in the story, so not on that level. I guess that that's an, sort of what I was trying to get out with my very dumb like will you look at a library like question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is, whether there is some sort of like more general, I don't know, resonance. I I don't know. I I mean, yeah, because like this. Not that I was leading this, but that makes me think like, yeah, this doesn't have the marks of like, well, I do this, and so I'm going to write a story about this. Like, it doesn't have the spe- annoying specifics that no one else but you, mm-hmm. like no one else but like a librarian would care about that. Right, and so you only put it then in there. To show that you're cool or that like you are so steeped in it that you don't realize that no one else cares right <laughs> about that and so it doesn't have that sort of like and then this was the classification system it used and this was how the cataloging happened and this was the materials that the books were bound like it didn't mm-hmm. have these more despite it going into the whole like hectares noah's ark like seriously like mm-hmm. i don't like what yeah it doesn't have like those marks on it I, I feel like um, it does like it feels very like just like you were saying, like it feels different from any sort of like library science and that the fact that it's a library is a sort of incidental and cool and not necessarily like making a commentary that it might be. Arthur, what are you doing? There is a, a feeling a lot of people get in libraries, especially if you, you get into a library of a certain size for the first time mm-hmm. and realizing that there's no way you could ever read everything in there, even if you wanted to, even if you had nothing else to do, if you never slept, you never ate, you could read, you still wouldn't have enough time to read all of it and understand all of it. And it's even worse because you can't live that life. Uh, so you're only going to be able to read a certain amount of books in your life, no matter how hard you try. There's always a limit to the information you can take in. And so that sort of despair does happen in a library. Like libraries do force people to confront their mortality simply by their size. A lot of things do that. But the idea of an infinite library would really make you confront your mortality, especially when every book is mostly gibberish and you could spend a lifetime never finding one that made any sense. That is my favorite line in this, though. It just it hit me so much harder. And it's the paragraph... Of, um, um, once I am dead, there will be no lack of pious hands to throw me over the railing. My grave will be the fathomless air. My body will sink endlessly and decay and dissolve in the wind generated by the fall, which is infinite. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I, this is the first time I've read this and the stuff about death in it stuck out more to me. I feel like when I read this in high school, I was just like, whoa, if it's a library, but whoa, it's so weird. And now I'm like thinking about like, oh, the suicides have gone The up. suicides, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to bring up too. It's just like people. there are other people in this. I always forget there are other people in the Library of Babel. Mm-hmm. It's always just the narrator. And then I reread it and it's like, oh, it talks about how, yes, there actually are other people. And but not as there many enough- as there used to be. And apparently they will throw your body over when you die and then you just fall forever. Are there just bodies falling around everyone all the time? I guess. (laughs) But yeah, like that is the way that this story makes explicit that connection between like a library collection and death and mortality. 
and the infinite. Like it does it in a way that typewriting monkeys don't. Because you just say, well, the, if you had six monkeys typing for a couple eternities, they would they would churn out every book in the British Museum. But if you said that this was a, a library that maybe you could only get semantic meaning out of if you were to like cross-reference one sentence with every book every hundred years or something, that that's the only way you could find a complete work. Mm. Because other people have said, you know, you don't even need the, the letters, you could put it into each book could be Morse code and mm-hmm. you get rid of all duplicates. You would only need one dot and one dash and you would just have the books repeat infinitely. So each book then becomes like a letter. That's where like, I feel like the metaphor does break down because it's like, yeah, you could do that. So like the mathematics of it all get kind of wonky, but I think setting it as a library is what gives it, it gives it more feeling. Cause like people do get that feeling in libraries of, being overwhelmed in the face of like too much information and it's right there in front of you and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And I keep coming back to it talking about, you know, the damage done or not done by the people who were getting rid, who were destroying the nonsense books. Again, we brought this up in the F for fake episode, I believe, but like, even though we say we aren't hoarders as a profession, this sort of panic about, but what if I can't preserve the important thing? Mm-hmm. What if the important thing gets destroyed? What if I don't even know what the important thing is mm-hmm. and we lose it? What if something gets lost forever and no one ever knew about it? I mean, you see all the time, even people who aren't librarians saying that they have like war flashbacks thinking about the library of Alexandria <laughs> and like to even think about like, well, how much did we lose? We don't know. Where would we be? We don't know. And where people like will kind of jokingly, but not jokingly, mourn the idea that all of this was lost and that there was nothing we 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 can do about it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people say that like Twitter exploding is like <laughs> Library of Alexandria happening again, and that like I- I've seen this one article floating around that like scientists or whatever are concerned that like this will be like a gargantuan loss of human knowledge if twitter goes down Mm. and it's like well the library of congress like was archiving tweets and it was like well a lot of this is garbage Mm. (laughs) i mean true it's you know the same (laughs) and so this like sort of inherent conflict that we've been having where we say like oh we don't hoard, we don't preserve everything, you know, it's the information and not necessarily, you know, whatever that's important. But then the even thought of, oh my God, we're going to miss something. Then all of a sudden it's like indiscriminate. Let's screenshot every single drill tweet. Mm. <laughs> Everyone yeah. download your Twitter archive because you're definitely going to want to look at your Twitter archive yeah, after you downloaded it. <laughs> like I said in that episode, I think it's a religious reaction. I think people have a real problem with impermanence and yeah. the fact that uh, information is not permanent. And in fact, it, it will inevitably decay. Books will decay. And it's like, I, I get that like certain things make people panic. Like I remember when the Trump administration started, there were people who were bagging and archiving climate change data. Same thing happened when the war in Ukraine started. Same thing happened with Twitter because they're afraid that like a certain record will not be saved in some way. But it's really most of those things, most of the the impacts of that wouldn't have done anything anyway, because even if the original data was lost, like the papers had already been written and stuff like that. 
but there's a there's just this big problem with you can't archive everything you can't know everything and i think in the face of that people panic people were saying like um you know how do i how do people get their stuff put into archives like if i save like my twitter archive who's going to preserve that and it's like probably no one like most of us are not going to have very much of a record left after we die unless we have a lot of money to give to john d fucksmith <laughs> So you, we, we know everything about John D. Fucksmith's life because he gave all the materials to the library that's named after him. But like, you're not going to know much about anybody else. So I think that's it's uh, there are other reasons to be concerned about like Twitter going down. And I know we have a, an episode lined up to talk about web archiving, but like Which is important. <laughs> yeah, it is important. I, I know and, we've been poo pooing it a little bit, but it is actually important. <laughs> but yeah, there's like the same there's there's like an equal crisis going on right now with like police dash cam footage that's on VHS and like that's deteriorating and those cases are still going. And like if those decay, then those court, then those court cases can't go forward because the evidence is literally destroying itself. Mm. And because it's been held up in the, uh, in the legal system for decades and people don't really panic about that, but they're worried about their Twitter. I don't know. I think, uh, like I said, I think a lot of people are going through it because they just have Twitter addictions and well, that's true. Yeah. Do you guys ever think about like what will happen if, I suppose when, but maybe not in our lifetimes, there's like a huge solar flare that just takes mm-hmm. everything down? What then? Oh, it'd be great if it like, like the, when they blow up all the credit card companies at the end of Fight Club. <laughs> that could be fun. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, there's like the Warner Herzog movie where he's talking about technology. I think it was the one where he talks about technology. And lo he, and behold. Yes, that. that I that, love that, lo that. and behold. Yeah, I yeah. wrote a paper about it one time. Just the part where he's like, what do we do? Like, what do we do when there's a solar flare? Nothing. And we're not ready for it. And <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Where he like has a documentarian throw shade or he has a scientist throw shade at Elon Musk mm. uh, talking about solar flares and stuff. And then it like just cuts to Elon Musk, like just kind of looking sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good documentary. Mm-hmm. I wrote a, I watched that and wrote about it when I was working on my second master's that I didn't finish, but I was writing about digital gardens and Donna Haraway. Okay. Um, Cause Ted Nelson talking about like project Xanadu and like hyperlinks and stuff in that, where he talks about how he's like putting his hand through the water. And Werner Herzog was like, I think you are the only one of us who is sane. <laughs> <laughs> in, in his Werner Herzog voice. But yeah, like again, like I remember like being assigned this in high school and it being like, oh, this is cool and infinite and stuff. But I feel like the death of information, does information exist or have a purpose if there's not people there? I mean, to- in a physicalist sense, yes, because you would just say information by definition is just a structure. But a mm-hmm. structure has to be something that's discerned by something else so information would interact with it because structures will interact without anything observing it but i think there's like a line in in the story that's sort of about that where it's like humanity is gonna die up the library is gonna be here forever you know yeah it it doesn't matter to the library (laughs) yeah (laughs) it doesn't get the fuck out of the library we don't want you here (laughs) and like now knowing his politics how very anti-statist borges was but libraries even the ones that he would be working at and stuff are functions and agents of the state. Mm-hmm. 
he was working at like the National Library of Argentina. Right. And so libraries and librarians are agents of the state and forces of the state and part of the state, unless they are a private library or perhaps part of um, a you know private education or something. But mm-hmm. regardless, libraries, especially public libraries, are state agents. And I guess like the library, the universe in this, is it the state? Like, how does the relationship between like librarianship and the state? I don't know. Exist here. I think it'd be hard for me to read it that way just because of the whole like sort of establishing thing of like the library's always been here and it doesn't seem to be have been made by humans and humans are sort of this lower life form kind of a yeah, thing like bugs so the state yeah. is like a human creation maybe like some of the like cults that that popped up in the library you could maybe say that something like a no that doesn't work either <laughs> sorry yeah. <laughs> disregard that but yeah yeah it's hard to read into it it doesn't mean it's not there but i don't think that's the concern of the story it seems like yeah. too much of the library is just the a stand-in for the physical world and the universe mm-hmm. People have like played around with the idea of like it's genetics, it's algorithms. Like these would be subsets of the library. Mm-hmm. I guess it's the it's the ultimate structure outside of the state that existed before. Mm-hmm. Like it's hasn't like I mean metadata anarchy time. I guess we could make the argument that like a library doesn't necessarily need order, mm-hmm. but also what is order? But as like an anarchist, an order that exists before order, and an order that exists without us putting our ideas of order mm-hmm. onto it. Because the library exists and has order, but it hasn't been like cataloged and classified. It exists as it is mm-hmm. without and before humans putting our own senses of taxonomy and subject and order mm-hmm. and whatnot onto it so maybe it's just sort of like i don't want to say natural order but some sort of platonic ideal of order without like the bullshit bullshit structures of the state on it or something yeah yeah what's our favorite of the cults i like the ones that are the the heretics who try and make up their own books using like random dice or whatever it is they use i forget some sort of random method of generating letters and they try to make their own books. Um, <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. The book heretics. How about you, Justin? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I only read the, um, the total library. I didn't get around to reading the, the library of Babel in time. I like them. I did. I, I found the discussion of um, some of the, one of the cults in there. And I guess this cult was even like a state agent kind of Mm -hmm. was the ones that would go around and destroy the nonsense out of the books, only leave behind the books that had like sense and meaning Mm -hmm. in them. Cause so many people yell at librarians for, for weeding the -hmm. dumpsters full of books discourse. Right. Right. Yeah. I I remember seeing that, uh, as an outside observer, obviously. And I think I saw your post about how, you know, determining what 
con- will continue to be useful is one of the most important functions of libraries and people just don't understand that and like there's all these sort of rotting i don't know duplicates or i don't know how you like determine what gets weeded or or whatever i i don't know the specifics but i just thought it was interesting the the sort of curation is is a very important part of being a librarian and this guy or in the story these guys who try to curate (laughs) get uh yelled at for it yeah i believe the crew musty Mm. is it musty or moist i can't remember it's a it's a gross word yeah, but basically it um, has to do with like the condition of the book, of the material, how much has been circulated, like is it actually getting used or not? Mm-hmm. Is it out of date? Like is this an encyclopedia right. from 1992 about baseball? <laughs> right. Misleading, good- ugly, superseded, trivial, your collection. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, there are a lot of things that go into weeding decisions but it's mainly like current and past use and then the state like the physical condition of the item and if also if you know you're going to be wanting to get more things you are going to Mm -hmm. have to make so much room for them (laughs) because your library is not infinite (laughs) your library is not infinite (laughs) neither in space nor budget Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Anything you add to a library is one, probably something you have to get rid of, but also another thing you can't add. Mm -hmm. That's why the whole like intellectual freedom thing is often kind of BS and impossible because there's no way that you can have something from everyone and for everyone Mm -hmm. in every single library. Right. Um, You just do not have the literal physical, even if it's a digital collection, you don't have that much server space. Mm -hmm. That's true. Like you just don't even digitally, the library of Babel actually cannot really exist. (laughs) You run out of server space. You run out of money. Um, Yeah. Because ultimately all information is still physical. Yes. And that's kind of the point that it's making is um, it's, it's a very physicalist atomist book, which maybe might be the anarchist connection. Like physicalism is, you know, a monist understanding of the universe. It's not a dualist one. It's it's only material. I think that works pretty well with like that's why I would say like Borges seems very much a modernist when we were talking about that earlier, mm-hmm. is he's very situated within like the Enlightenment, but also within like industrialization. Because I was I was watching a series of lectures um that I, I go back to a lot. But because it's really all that exists of this guy. Um he's a Texas philosophy professor uh why am i blanking on his name jordan peterson he's canadian (laughs) up yours woke more or less i wish i could do a good kermit peterson voice rick roderick and porn name is he in boogie nights yeah maybe dirk diggler ass name (laughs) he probably brought up boogie nights in one of his lectures he really liked talking about movies uh, he said modernism ultimately comes back to the factory. And so anything that has like the logic of industrialism, the logic of the factory, you can classify as modernist. Um, it, it changes the way we enjoy our spare time and the way we educate our children, the way that we structure our relationships. All of those things are influenced by the factory schedule. And that's what makes that what's that's what defines modernity. Mm. So that's why I would say Borges is is very strongly modernist, but obviously he's right in a period where postmodernism is about to emerge. 
and he's, is already he's emerging. Sort of like it, it's it's hard to say because it's the same with people who sort of classify him as as magical realist, which I'm less. I, I agree with less. I think than than postmodern. Like it's a Marquez. Yeah, right. it's. I think it, it. Yes, um, and it's. I think for the same reason that that a lot of people, myself included, would call him like a postmodernist, is that he kind of created a lot of it, like, uh, or or was a pioneer. One of, obviously, he's not the only guy doing this, but he was a, a very sort of early influential writer who popularized a lot of what came to be sort of these hallmarks of postmodernism and, you know, influenced these writers like, you know, Thomas Pynchon, Lou Cortazar, Echo, Calvino, etc. Yeah, what I'll end up doing is I'll go on a on a Borges reading binge after we do this episode. <laughs> much like much like I'm now watching all of Buffy after going on a podcast to talk about Buffy when I'd only seen two episodes. <laughs> and now I'm on like hey, season five. I got five. invited on it and I don't even like Buffy, so... <laughs> I kind of want to make you watch Buffy now so I can talk to you about it. <laughs> so I want to get your thoughts on an extended uh, Buffy discourse. Fucking fine. I'm having, I'm having a lot of fun watching it now. Like once you're in it, you're just like, oh, this is funny. Just watch it for Giles. You'll get through it. And, <laughs> and, Giles and does Spike. Is funny. And Spike. I know I Spike like Spike. Spike is really fun, too. Yeah, I like Spike. Yeah, he's, those are my two favorite characters, definitely. They're the best characters. <laughs> Even I know that. Yeah, I guess like with Borges's anarchism, I would say that it's interesting because he's also like the the mystical Gnostic stuff. Because normally like, you wouldn't associate anarchism with that kind of stuff. But actually, it's all in there. Mm-hmm. And this sort of like... Oh, for those at home who aren't seeing this, I was holding up my Occult Features of Anarchism book about <laughs> how so much of the modern anarchist movement has to do with like Freemasonry and the uh, and Hermeticism and stuff, including the fucking A. <laughs> really? Like, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Barbara Ehrenreich did the foreword to this book, too. Okay, cool. It's through PM Press. That like, I feel like, and this is probably just because I'm starting to notice it, but that there's been this sort of like material mysticism rise Mm -hmm. happening on left Twitter. Like the philosopher's tarot is a thing that all of the spooky leftists have. (laughs) I've never seen this. All I get are people calling Joyce postmodern. It's it's all of the, the, the people who like Mark Fisher. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're all into tarot now, I guess. Did <laughs> <laughs> you get that fucking drop, Justin? I've had that for like six months. I've been waiting to use it. No one's been waiting for me to drop. No That's one's so brought good. up Mark Fisher in months. <laughs> Congratulations. I did it. Um, but yeah, there's been this like growing sort of like let's not just be like, like what is materialism as good communists and Marxists and anarchists, but at what point is materialism, very strict materialism limiting. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if the type of like mysticism, I mean, what if, what is God, if not a big book? That's true. You know, God in this universe is still a physical object. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess that a person was able, could read, you know, or maybe it's that like the only thing that is real 
or important in this universe is the information and God is all, all of it. So it's sort of this like, you know, Spinozist thing, perhaps. Hell I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> Or you have an impersonal God that doesn't know that humans exist. So God exists somewhere in the universe, but is not aware of other things within it. So like in Futurama, God is a, a, is a constellation of stars that collided with a satellite. And also uh, there's, sort of like the whole problem of dualism. Like if you wanted to interact with the physical world, that would imply that the thing interacting with it is physical. Mm. So yeah. it, it allows for like a monist interpretation of divinity. I was just about to start talking about the Nobel prize in physics and this year, the, the sort of everything is connected, at least as far as I understand it, which I probably don't again, um, I'm a cartoonist, but I, I did read about that. I got terribly excited because it was similar to a dream I had during a mental breakdown. So Hell I was yeah. like, this is this is great. I feel a little ripped off that I didn't get a Nobel Prize for coming up with that, but it's okay. I'll let him have it. Yeah, it's like how I felt reading that fucking mushroom book and having like an <laughs> existential crisis while, while reading it. Like, oh, damn it. All of these deep truths that I knew. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you knew it all along. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so what do we think for we what's our like little action oriented or deep deep thinky thoughts question for the end of this oh, episode? <laughs> Justin, what do you think? Justin normally asks them. Mm. I guess I would want people to, to consider more like the relationship between like libraries and librarianship and, and death and mortality, mm. like in a way more explicit way. Than just oh no the information's gonna go away or the book is rotting or something but like when I die the hands will drop me over and then I'll fall through the library forever until the wind erodes me away forever or oh no I will never like not just that you will not have time to ever read all the books in the whole world but like that implies also dying so I guess like my big thinky question would be sort of like what should librarians like, how should, could we be grappling with death and mortality of ourselves and patrons more explicitly? I you guess. You could have, like, a creation of, like, goth librarianship. <laughs> Literally me and Matthew, and I think a few other people are Facebook group admins of the goth librarians <laughs> Facebook group. So there's that. But, yeah, goth librarians, we, we have some work to do, I think. We should get Caitlin What's-Her-Face on, the mortician lady. Caitlin Doty? Doty, yeah. Maybe she has ideas about death and libraries. Yeah, sure maybe. That's my big thinky brain thought is, is goth shit. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing with like the man from Earth. Like, why aren't librarians writing more science fiction about the universe? Like, why aren't more historians writing stuff like the man from Earth? And you could grapple with, with questions about like meaning and uh, liter and, and use by sort of extending them into absurdities. I think yeah. science fiction is a good place for that. But you could also do it with horror. That's that's way more my bag. Yeah, is this a horror story? Is this a science fiction story? What do we think? I think um, it's probably a horror story in the in the light in the sort of the line of like Frankenstein like the culmination of of too much modernity and too much physicalism. I feel like I'm I'm too much of a Pollyanna. I don't read it as a horror story necessarily. Obviously, the stuff about eternity and death is is a bit of a bummer, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know what I would classify the story as, or if it could even be classified. Really, like 
philosophical fiction if that's a genre maybe but it feels very cosmic to me Mm -hmm. spiritual fiction mystic fiction these are not genres It's just descriptions. <laughs> right, let's be good Deridians here and say that things aren't of genres. They participate in them. Oh, true. So we're participating in this new genre that you just created. <laughs> Hell yeah. Honestly, that is that is the genre I read the most these days anyway. Woo-woo spiritual stuff. Same. Cool. Well, thank you both for having me on. Thank you for having thank you for having me on. <laughs> thank you for coming on. <laughs> you took a real risk uh trying getting getting someone like mm-hmm. me to come on and try and like sound smart. Uh and it did not pay off, but <laughs> I appreciate it anyway. No, it super did. We 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 have all sorts on here. <laughs> yeah. Including gamers. So <laughs> Well, all right. <laughs> it makes me feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll put all of the links to your comics and social media in the notes. Do you want people to check out anything in particular? Uh, they should buy my book. No, uh, that's uh, that's on an Etsy store. That's like a sort of hidden link that I have not successfully linked to all of my other social media. So I will send that to you. Um, and okay. if you want a physical book of uh, Frat Boy Amadeus, please buy it from my Etsy. And that's all I really have to plug. <laughs> And then slowly we'll get everyone to read Infinite Jest. I was really, really had you on. We're going to take over and it's going to be an Infinite Jest I was like, can I make it through a whole podcast episode without mentioning Mm -hmm. David Foster Wallace? No. To this this day, (laughs) I've been on like six or seven at this point and it's always come up. So... That was my real purpose for having you on. Good. Infinite Jest Jest posting time. If you ever do an Infinite Jest episode. They'll have to kill me probably. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they just won't let that happen. <laughs> Good night.